Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 24th, a Friday. Um, it's mid-morning in California, uh, in San Francisco. We're just north of Silicon Valley. And as so often in this show, we're going to be talking about Silicon Valley, technology, and ethics. Uh, I'm not sure if they all naturally go together. That'll be a question that we're going to be asking today. Uh, this week, like so many other weeks uh, in 2021 and indeed before, uh, we in, in the Bay Area have been transfixed with morality and technology. Uh, this week, Elizabeth Holmes, the extremely dishonest, perhaps criminal founder of Theranos, has gone on trial. The trial is unseemly. It involves a lot of moral point, uh, finger pointing, a lot of things which probably shouldn't be played out in public. Um, Verge talks about Elizabeth Holmes's cringy text being made public is the ultimate crime deterrent. I don't really want to get into the, the Holmes um, story in terms of Theranos, but Holmes seems to represent a kind of, an, she's the exhibit of a, uh, a tech founder who went wrong on the moral front. And I'm not sure if it's a coincidence, but like so many of the tech founders, so many of the billionaires and multi-billionaires now dominating our world, um, Holmes attended Stanford University, like Peter Thiel, like the founders of Google and so many others. Uh, for um, regular listeners and viewers of the show, we've been featuring a new book called System Error, where big tech went wrong and how we can reboot by three Stanford professors, Rob Reich, who's a professor of political philosophy, Jeremy Weinstein, who focuses on public policy, and Mehran Sahami, who is an engineering professor and an ex-Google executive and uh, engineer. And I'm thrilled that we have, um, uh, that we have uh, Mehran uh, Sahami uh, joining us from his home office in Palo Alto, just near Silicon Valley. Uh, just uh, at the heart of Silicon Valley in Palo Alto uh, and, and near Stanford University, of course. Uh, Marin, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm not suggesting, of course, that everyone who went to Stanford um, uh, is guilty of the same moral lapses as, as Elizabeth Holmes. But is there a problem, in your view, with Stanford? You you teach a lot of engineering students. You teach one of the most popular introductory uh, courses on engineering and ethics uh, at Stanford. Is there a problem with the moral or lack of moral education of engineering and business students at Stanford, or has there been over the last few years? Well, thanks for having me on the show, Andrew. Um, I think you have to look at that from a, diff a few different viewpoints. I think the case of someone like Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos um, if you look at that, that's kind of, you know, one of the things we talk about in the class is different levels of understanding ethics. There's a very basic level, which is kind of the level of don't lie, cheat, or steal. Um, those are the kinds of ethics that we think most people actually learn pretty early in life. It's not something that if you took a class on, if you had a proclivity to cheat and steal, that taking a class suddenly inoculates you against that. Um, and so I think from that standpoint, what we see in the Theranos case is sort of a violation of that very first level of ethics. 
But the place where things become more interesting is thinking about a level of professional ethics. What is kind of acceptable to do in a particular profession? What are the norms? What might someone get ostracized from their profession for doing? So for example, if you consider in law, there's the American Bar Association that has a certain code of ethics. And ultimately the place we get to is the kind of the third level is the notion of political ethics, of understanding that a lot of different people have different preferences for what they'd like to see in the world. And that becomes a political process to be able to deliberate and adjudicate among those different preferences to get to the societal outcome we want. So what I would say is in terms of education, that first level is something that is not just about a class, it's about someone's kind of moral fiber. Those other two levels are things that we can actually teach and it is something that we've been teaching at Stanford now for several years. Uh, when it comes though to somebody like Holmes, do you think there's a, a culture uh, in Silicon Valley, in Palo Alto, uh, perhaps even at Stanford, which encourages um, the avoidance of the truth, which almost justifies telling a few lies if it benefits you in the longer term. I, we, we all can't, of course, see inside Holmes's head. It would be a fascinating experience and journey. But it seems as if she believed, if you like, in her lies. She thought that she was doing humanity a favor and that perhaps cutting a few moral corners was justified. Again, I don't want to make Holmes into somebody who's typical, but, but it's not that unusual a story, is it? Um, I think it actually is the more unusual story. I mean, if you consider, say, Holmes is an example of a particular student who's been, you know, uh, gotten a spotlight shined on them coming out of Stanford in the last 10 years, you need to understand that during that same period of time, we've had thousands of students graduate in computer science and even more so in engineering who've had very you know, meaningful careers in the field that did not involve any deception or did not involve breaches of ethics like that. So I think, you know, in the general level, when we think about students coming out of Stanford, um, by and large, I think they're actually, you know, very sensitive to issues of ethics. What we try to do in our classes is make sure that we kind of guide them in that process of what are some of the things to pay attention to. And really, I would put Holmes as kind of an outlier on the curve of students. She's not indicative of, of what I actually see in the vast majority of students coming through the university. Marion, you begin your book uh, with an anecdote about another young man, he's still relatively young, who went to Stanford, Joshua Brother. I interviewed him actually for this show seven or eight years ago, um, as he was, I think he was at Stanford, he was a first or second year student. He's the founder uh, of a company called Do Not Pay, the world's first robot lawyer. It's raised quite a lot of money uh, and had quite a lot of success. Uh, Browder is a better example, I guess, from your point of view of, of, of someone who isn't necessarily immoral, but who could do with um, some lessons or type, type of characters like Browder with startups like Do Not Pay, uh, who, who need more of a, if not a moral education, perhaps uh, a lesson in politics and government and political philosophy. Is that fair? Yeah, I think the idea would be that, and we've actually engaged uh, Joshua about the book. So he's seen the book, he's seen the content. In there. What did he say? Was he upset? Um, no, I think what he was actually more interested in is being able to talk through the issues. 
And so we actually said, you know, at some point we'd like to have you, for example, come to our class. He said, I'll bring the data. We said, we love data. What we want to do is be able to in, engage in a discourse around what were his motivations for doing what he did? What are some alternative viewpoints? So how could one see, for example, a system that uh, roboticizes much of the legal process as potentially leading to some outcomes that were unintended? or that may actually have other kinds of downstream effects societally that were not the things that were thought about at the time that the venture was launched. And I think we're seeing that play out, not just a do not pay, but a bunch of different companies where there was a focus on what was possible to do with the technology. And as a result, there probably wasn't as much attention paid to what are the downstream social consequences. That's the moment that we're at now is to have more of a reckoning about those consequences. And what we wanna do is engage in the dialogues to understand the different motivations and have it be driven by real data rather than speculation. Is there an element of system error at Stanford over the years? Uh, Browder has been um, turned into a typical kind of heroic startup guy by lots of people at Stanford. Here we have a, a slide of, of him speaking at the law school in 2017. Uh, do you think it's a broader system crisis, uh, Marin? I think we do have a broader issue in technology. And of course, Stanford is a place that produced a lot of technologists and is a seedbed of Silicon Valley needs to engage with that. And what we need to have is a broader conversation to think about when we develop technology, we need to understand more critically what are the broader social aspects? What are the, in some sense, they use the language of economists, the negative externalities that are generated. And those are on full display now. So it's something that the technologists have to reckon with. And so what we've been trying to do the last few years is actually bring these multiple viewpoints, thinking about the social science, thinking about politics, thinking about ethics and philosophy into the classroom while engaging with deep technological issues so that students can understand not just how to think about technological problems, but what are the other attendant social problems that may be created as a result. Here's your Stanford page. You're a, a living legend at Stanford. Uh, how many of the kids who start at Stanford, how many of them come through your classroom? It's an astonishing number, isn't it? Right. So I'm one of the instructors for our introductory class, which is CS106A. Um, we have probably about 1,500 students to 1,600 students take that class a year. And an undergraduate class at Stanford is a little over 1,700 students. Um, we do have some graduate students take the class as well, but it's a pretty large percentage of the, the entire university takes that class at some point. Um, what is it that you want these kids to get out of your class? I want them to get a few things. At one level, I want them to have a sense of empowerment as to what is possible to do. But secondly, what I also want them to understand is what are the consequences of what you do, the choices that you make, the, the actions that you, you know, take in building technology has consequences. Who are you building technology for? What is that problem is that technology trying to solve? And what are going to be the impacts of it downstream? Because I think the thing that we've seen in the last decade is that technology is tremendously powerful. It's very empowering to the people who have the skills to be able to go out and write an app and suddenly have it used by millions of people around the world. But when you have that kind of power, you also have to have an attendant responsibility. And that's something that we're infusing both through this class we've been teaching that was the seedbed for the book and also for other work that we're doing to infuse more ethics education throughout the entire computer science curriculum. Isn't that obvious, though? Do you really need to teach it that technologists 
um, who have a great deal of success impact society. Why, why do they have to go to Stanford to learn that? They don't have to go to Stanford to learn that, but if they're at students at Stanford, we want them to be inculcated with that while they're there. It's not just a matter of being saying be ethical. It's a matter of actually looking at things like case studies of the impacts that technologies have had that may have been unintended, of looking at issues downstream that happen in terms of value trade-offs, things like how do we look at personal privacy versus national security that comes into conflict as a trade-off when we consider a particular technology like encryption. And so that's the place we get to is as we grapple with these frontier technologies, they bring up value trade-offs and we try to make those explicit so the students can understand what the trade-offs actually are and make more informed decisions when they're developing that technology. Has there been a cultural shift, um, Mehran, over the last 60, 50, 60 years? Hewitt Packard was the original Silicon Valley company that was literally founded, I think, at Stanford. The two founders, Hewitt and Packard, were, I think, seen and continue to be seen as iconic figures, responsible, caring about their workers, concerned about society. Has something changed between the days of Hewitt Packard and the days of today? I think there has been a big change, but the change has been the way technology impacts people. So back in the days of Hewlett Packard, oftentimes technology was developed for a single person's use, right? HP was developing calculators for a while, and they started with oscilloscopes, actually, if you go back to their founding. But when we even think about the birth of the personal computer, that's the way it was thought of. It was the personal computer. We didn't yet have everyone networked on the internet. There weren't a bunch of social applications. So what was happening was people were using the computing machine to facilitate their own individual work. And what we saw over time is that as people became networked, as we built more applications that had a social or sharing nature, or that involved information that was being gathered from multiple sources, we had much more of a societal impact through technology. That's the moment that we've seen in the last few years, where as we have these broader societal impacts, as people are affecting other people directly through technologies being the medium, we need to have more awareness and understanding of the social impact and take better steps to mitigate the negative effect. Is one example of that um, the artificial intelligence revolution. There's a new platform out now, very influential, very well financed, called OpenAI. And they claim their mission is to ensure that artificial general intelligence benefits all of humanity. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Um, the founder or certainly the CEO of, um, of, of, of uh, OpenAI is another Stanford graduate, Sam Altman. I don't know if you know him or he's been through your classroom. Um, he had an influential uh, essay uh, earlier this year called Moore's Law for Everything. Seems to me... All too often with these um, brilliant, dynamic, uh, but controversial technology founders like Altman, is they have a problem with language. How much language instruction do you give them? Do you get them to read Orwell, for example? Well, in our class, for example, we do uh, have them take a look at different philosophical frameworks to think about uh, um, different kinds of ways that people make decisions. Are they, is it consequentialism, right? We look at uh, Bentham. Um, are there other kinds of, uh, you know, in Kant, is there a duty in terms of the sort of you know, ethical frameworks students think about? But more broadly, what we want them to engage with is the notion of the uh, 
political nature of the value trade-offs that they're making in technology. AI is a great example of a technology that's going to have a tremendous impact on people as opposed to on one individual. And so what I mean by people is it's going to rewrite sectors of, of the workforce, for example. Um, depending on who you talk to, you get different statistics, but I've seen numbers anywhere from 9% to 43% of jobs are going to be impacted in the next 10 years by artificial intelligence. And that's going to disproportionately impact people on the uh, lower end of the spectrum in terms of, of income that they, they get. The, the kinds of work that they're doing. But we're seeing as AI progresses, there's actually, it's moving further and further up in terms of capability. So could it, could it potentially replace some kind of doctors? Could it potentially even replace some programmers? People have been talking about that. I think the bigger issue there that we need to think about is there's the kinds of problems that AI can solve, but there's also the way we want to be able to interact with technology. And we've actually seen this issue play out years in the past. For example, there's actually been medical diagnosis systems that were developed 30, 40 years ago that were on par in terms of their diagnosis with world experts. And those systems didn't get used because people don't want to have a computer tell them they have a terminal illness. There's a role for bedside manner. There's a role for the human being to have the computer be an assistant in what they're doing and then be able to actually interact with other people in a way that is comforting, that makes sense. Those are the kinds of things we need to think about is how does technology benefit humanity rather than thinking about technology replacing humanity. I get that. But when you look at the headline, whether the, uh, the, 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 the homepage for OpenAI describes itself uh, its mission is to ensure that artificial general intelligence benefits all of humanity, which may be true, but OpenAI is a private company designed to make money for its investors and shareholders. Um, what do you teach your students about the relationship between their companies and marketing and the language around marketing, which always promises the benefits to humanity, but in truth, usually only benefits the people associated with the company itself. Yeah, that's absolutely something that we talk about is, you know, how do companies, for example, turn market power into political power? And because they are, in many cases, beholden to shareholders. OpenAI has a, is, is an interesting structure. If you look more deeply in terms of how it's set up, it's not just a traditional, entirely uh, for-profit company. But, you know, it still has a component of that. Um, and the bigger issue there is what are the values that are being, uh, in some sense, optimized? So one of the things we talk about in this book is, is the notion of the optimization mindset, how engineers, as part of their training, think about how do I make things more efficient? And in some cases, that makes a lot of sense. If I want to, for example, sort a list of numbers in a computer, I might want to do that very efficiently. But when you take that mindset and apply it to a bunch of problems at scale in the world, what ends up happening is you end up optimizing for particular measures that might be trying to do something like increase the amount of time on platform or the amount of ads that people click on. And the further and further you optimize that, the further the the greater negative externalities you can actually be generating you have kids that are now glued to screen watching youtube videos on endless loops because youtube has found a way to make the next video that much more appealing for kids to watch and if their thing that they're trying to optimize is time on platform because they want people to watch the most ads for them it's this metric of oh people are spending time on the platform they must be doing that because they enjoy it and it's completely avoiding the value of the fact that kids are becoming sedentary and watching TV and engaging in antisocial behavior. 
So those are the things that we try to find is understanding when you're optimizing something, are you really optimizing for the benefit of humanity or are you optimizing for your own benefit? And once you understand some of the other trade-offs that are happening and as you push this one value at scale, these other things are getting diminished, that's the place where understanding that allows people hopefully to make better decisions about how they direct their companies. You mentioned YouTube, uh, Meran. Of course, YouTube now is owned by Google. You're a formal Google uh, executive. You were there at a fairly early stage. Google is also intimately bound up with Stanford. In fact, probably the most famous Google tech story, uh, the most famous Stanford tech story of all is how the two founders, young, brilliant founders of, of, of Google, um, and, and, and correct me if I use this word wrongly, co-opted the Stanford University computers to download the entire internet, which represents the, the foundations of the Google search engine. It was a remarkable achievement. What, what does the Google story tell us about the moral education and miseducation um, of Stanford and Silicon Valley? Well, I think, you know, Google started as a research project at Stanford. So it's not per se that they were co-opting the machines as they were actually engaging in this as a research project. And when they developed this technology, the initial thing that, that Larry Page and Sergey Brin wanted to do was basically just sell this better technology to do search. And interestingly enough, many of the companies at the time turned them down because they thought that search was a commodity and they didn't understand that it could actually be done at a much better level. So Larry and Sergey ended up founding the company as a way to really show what the technology could do. And in the early days of Google, there was a mantra of don't be evil. There were many things that we you know, thought. When did you possible. join, Marin? What year were you? I joined in 2002. So, so pretty early, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, there were lots of things that we could potentially think of that would have generated more revenue that were lines that we didn't want to cross. Because at that time, there was a real feeling of we believe in the mission of organizing the world's information, making it available. And so what we were trying to do is figure out better ways of doing that. And at the same time, what had also come into being just recently around the time I joined was the notion of showing ads. And I think what happened over time is it has to do exactly with this optimization mindset. What happened was there was this notion of how do we generate more and more revenue from ads? And at some point, their DoubleClick as a company was purchased that did more behavioral targeting or demographic targeting in terms of advertising. That opened up new possibilities for now being able to optimize showing ads. And so over time, this fixation on revenue generation, ad click-throughs led to further and further pushing boundaries. But, but it's more than that. It's part of the ecosystem. The reason why Larry and Sergey were pushed that way mm -hmm. was because they took money from venture capitalists. They were they were uh, publicly hostile to the idea of advertising. And then they brought in a grown-up to run the company. And there was a time where the, the investors in the company made it very difficult for them to avoid making money. So they, 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 they changed from being a company opposed to the idea of advertising to the model of, of what Shoshana Zuboff now calls surveillance capitalism. Is there a moral element in taking money from VCs, Maran? Do you teach your students about that? Well, there is an element of what you become beholden to when you take money, right? There's expectations when people give you money. Oftentimes, the main expectation is return on investment. 
And so you, when someone takes money from a venture capitalist or from any other source, they need to be aware of what they are signing up for. And so in some cases, they are giving up some amount of power potentially in their company. If the people investing money are taking board seats in that company, they may be giving up some level of autonomy. They may be pushed into practices that they don't want to engage in. And the real question is, what kind of control are they maintaining and what kind of stamina do they have to be able to push back when someone is trying to push them in a direction that they don't want to go? And I think that in Silicon Valley, there's examples of that in, in different directions where people actually said no, and other cases where either they weren't capable of saying no, or uh, structurally, they could not say no. I think it's a little unfair to begin with Elizabeth Holmes, because she's the very rare female uh, entrepreneur. And of course, one of the big issues in the Valley uh, is the fact that there are so few females and indeed minorities represented. Uh, you actually got your PhD at Stanford, uh, and your uh, advisor was Daphne Koller, uh, 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 an Israeli female uh, technologist. What's gone wrong on the, on, on the gender front, Mehran? You, you deal with a lot of young men and women. Is this changing? And, and, and why is Silicon Valley still so much um, a, a club of young white men, particularly ones who were educated or perhaps miseducated at Stanford? Well, so there traditionally, or I shouldn't say traditionally, there's historically been a gender imbalance in computer science. The good news is it's actually been getting better. What we've seen in the last decade is much larger enrollments by women in computing classes and in computer science majors. You know, at Stanford at one point, we were our major was uh, about 15% women. Um, at this point, it's over a third women. Um, in terms of our introductory uh, programming class, it's actually reached parity. We're basically at pretty close to 50-50. I think it's about 47, 53%, uh, slightly skewed toward men. But we're seeing much more engagement from women in the field. I think the issues that we then get into is how do we keep people in the field? So what we've also seen is a lot of toxic masculinity in the computing profession. So once people get their degree and they enter the field, um, they feel as though the field is not welcoming. And those are the, you know, in terms of the steps and the problem that we need to engage with, that's one of the ones that's on full display now is how do we get a broader array of of people in the room to be able to build technological solutions for a wider variety of people. And there is the, the main issue in this is that this diversity of viewpoints is critical to developing technologies that benefit everyone. Because oftentimes someone thinks, well, maybe there's a particular viewpoint that, that benefits just some small group of people. It turns out the needs of a small group of people oftentimes generalize to a broader need of a lot of people. I can give you an example of that with, you know, one of our former students was looking specifically at the issue of privacy online for domestic violence victims, right? How do they keep their uh, information private, say, from their abusers or other people who they don't want to find out? And so she said, you know, why do all these platforms have these different Baroque privacy interfaces? Why isn't there just one place I can set in understandable language privacy settings and have that propagate to a bunch of different places? So she built that. She actually built a system that people could do that. And it did the translation to figure out how to set the privacy settings in everyone else's, you know, all these other platforms. And when people saw that, whether they were a domestic abuse victim, which was her initial target audience or not, they said that's something we need because privacy is important to everyone. So Facebook, of course, uh, Maren has been getting terrible press these days, 
the worst press of all of all tech companies. The, the journal's just been running a series of pieces about Facebook knowing that Instagram, which it acquired, is toxic for teenage girls. Uh, and the, uh, the CTO, the chief technolo technology officer of Facebook, just announced that he was going to step down in 2022. Uh, clearly, it's, it, it's as a consequence of the terrible media, press, reputation that Facebook has. Uh, these, this CTO, um, Mike Schroffer, is, surprise, surprise, a graduate of Stanford. What do you tell your students about resignations and ways of fighting back? I mean, do you have uh, classes, lectures on, on what they should do to fight back against what they see as injustice? Because one of the things that seems to have changed in Silicon Valley is employee, uh, employees of big tech, they don't tend to be as, as senior as Schroeder, are clearly acquiring a voice, critiquing companies like Uber and Facebook. Um, and PayPal and many others in the Valley. Yeah, and you know, actually Mike Schrepfer is uh, someone we've had come as, to our class as a speaker. And at the same time, we've also had Meredith Whitaker, who was one of the organizers of the walkout at Google and has been very involved in labor organization after she left Google, also as a speaker in our class. And so one of the things that we want students to understand is where are the different places they have levers of power that they can make changes. So one way is to go into a company and try to be a change agent from inside. Another one is to get involved in uh, labor organization. Even the decision as to what company you go work for, you are making a decision about what you value and how do you make those trade-offs. It's something we have very explicit conversations about in the class. Another of, uh, we, we talked about female students, uh, an interesting woman who graduated fairly recently from Stanford is Elizabeth Yin. She had a really interesting piece out this week called The Rise of the Decentralized Startup, in which she sees sort of crypto and blockchain as representing a post-Web 2.0 world where power gets taken away and we can wipe the slate clean and begin again. Do you believe that's possible? Can technology make the world a better place? Or really, ultimately, um, in a post-Web 2.0 world of crypto, are we going to have the rise of, of, of new big tech companies? Well, I think it's important to, to maintain perspective on the notion of technology, right? There's lots of ways in which technology makes our life better on a daily basis. But the things that we try to focus on are the places that technology has gone wrong and we need to fix it. So, yeah, I think we need to have, maintain a broader perspective about that. But, you know, can we wipe the slates clean and start over again? I think that's hard. And I think it's hard, honestly, because there tend to be, especially in, in social platforms that involve markets, especially two-sided markets, uh, monopolistic effects, right? A simple example of this, we bring it up in the book, is eBay, right? Um, if you ask someone what is the largest online auction site, it's pretty, most people would, if they have any familiarity with online auctions, they would say eBay. You say, okay, name the number two site. No one knows. Why? Because there's a monopolistic effect, right? Sellers want to go to the place where there's... And of course, the same is true of Google and Facebook and so many other of these, of these companies in this winner-take-all economy. Exactly. And so, you know, is, is antitrust going to solve the problem or are we going to solve the problem by breaking Facebook up into 10 different mini-Facebooks? 
Probably not, because what would happen is they would consolidate over time unless we find ways to be able to prevent that, right? One is interoperability of data among platforms to say, you know, once I create all my friend connections, I want that information to be available to any other social network, no matter what social network I'm on. So I can choose one based on what are the features that I want to see, but I can still connect to people in other places. Those are technological issues. They're solvable technological issues, but unless we understand them, we can't get to political solutions that require also attendant technology to make them possible. I mentioned uh, Elizabeth, uh, I mentioned Daphne Kohler. She left Stanford and founded an online startup, Coursera, uh, which is designed to, I think, in many ways, democratize education. Of course, Stanford is a remarkable school, but uh, uh, I think you accept, you know, one in a, a few hundred students. So it's still very hard to get access to your class. You suggested earlier, Miran, uh, that. Uh, regulation of, of people like Lena Khan or Gary Gensler at the SEC is probably not the solution. Education then is key. Um, do we need to democratize institutions like Stanford? Um, is the fix in networks like Coursera that open up uh, the wisdom of people like yourself to a broader audience? Well, I think education is absolutely part of it. And you see this you know, both through Coursera um, as well as other online platforms that have tried to take educational opportunities and make them more broadly available. Um, and I think, you know, the work that Daphne and Andrew have done at Coursera is a great example of that. Um, in, you know, there are many things that Stanford's also, you know, tried to do to make their education more widely available. And we see lots of people get involved. So myself and a colleague, uh, Chris Peach, and another one of our colleagues, Julie Zelensky, did a program called Code in Place, where we said, could we take Stanford's introductory course and make it available to tens of thousands of people around the world for free? And if we want to do that with fidelity, the way, you know, the way that course works at Stanford is we actually have section leaders that help you know, tutor groups of 10 people at a time going through the class. So a small group experience as opposed to just, uh, you know, videos online. And we actually got 2000 people from around the world to volunteer to do that. So we could teach 20,000 people going through the class, which was the vast majority of, you know, at Fidelity Stanford's introductory class. And so I think, you know, education is a is a critical part of it. I wouldn't rule out regulation completely. I do think regulation plays a role, but I think we're being, you know, it's a little overly optimistic to think that if you just break a company up, it solves the problem. Um, I think if you look back actually to the case of uh, the antitrust that was brought against Microsoft in the 90s, that's much more instructive, which is you didn't need to break up the company, but what you need to do is show that the government is actually willing to take action, which will blunt their more aggressive stance in the marketplace, right? Why does Google exist? Because Microsoft was blunted in doing things like acquiring them or building something that could compete as hard that it could really take out a competitor. And if you look back in the 90s, Microsoft did that with a lot of companies. They became much less aggressive after the government really decided to step in and, and threaten more action. Yeah, I was about to say that uh, had it not been for the Microsoft case, you may not have even been on this show. You may not have written this book because you wouldn't have joined Google and everything would have been different. Uh, Mehran um, Sahami, it's an honor. I, I really appreciate your very reasonable responses to some of my less reasonable questions. Your new book, which you co-authored with Rob Reich and Jeremy Weinstein's System Era, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot, is a really important and interesting 
um, attempt to make sense from the belly of the beast, from Stanford, of what's gone wrong and how we can fix it. It's a must read, I think, for anyone who cares about this stuff. Congratulations on the book. What else should people be reading? You're talking to me from your home office in Palo Alto. We're still not really supposed to go out in California, Maren. What else should people be reading in these strange times? Well, the thing, I mean, one book that is, I think, a book that is apropos for these strange times, but you have to be in the right mindset to read it, is actually The Plague by Albert Camus. Um, and that was has been one of my favorite books, actually, for, for many years, and is particularly apropos given the circumstances. Do you, do you think The Plague, uh, Camus' The Plague, obviously it's a metaphor in his book. Um, is it a metaphor for technology or for COVID or for both? Um, I think it's a, it's a, well, it's maybe more than a metaphor, but a, a look at ourselves of what we really value, of what's important to us and what our, um, what the, what the meaning of our existence is. Um, and I think at times, you know, maybe that's, that's a huge ball of stuff to, to sort of bring up at the end. Um, but I think at moments like this is a moment of reflection to understand what are the things we really value? What are the connections that are important to us? Because when some of those things were taken away from us to be able to just see other people, to be able to give someone a hug, um, you realize the importance of things that we often take for granted. Yeah, Camus' book is, of course, The Plague, uh, a book about both the opportunities, but also limitations of technology and of medicine. And uh, I think your book, uh, Meran Sahani's new book, uh, System Era, in some ways is a similar kind of uh, discourse on on a return to basic human values uh, and a recognition that technology is not everything. Meran, a real honor to have you on the show. Congratulations. Continue teaching. Continue trying to educate those Stanford students into being more responsible citizens. Uh, and congratulations on the book. And I'd love to have you back on the show in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here.